1: Hello and welcome back aboard the New Scientist Escape Pod.
2: Yeah, this is the podcast that aims to take you away from everyday life and distract you with anything we think is suitably mind-blowing or relaxing or just intriguing. or
3: All of those things.
2: Yeah, all of them. <laughs> I'm Anna Deming. I'm New Scientist Features Editor.
3: And I'm Timothy Revel, New Scientist Comment and Culture Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper.
1: I'm our Podcast Editor. This week, we've got a theme of alliances.
2: Yeah, we're going to be looking at three very different kinds of alliance. We've got human, biological and atomic. So Rowan, what's in your escape pod today?
1: Yeah, I wanted to talk about an alliance that everyone can see in your garden or in your local park, on trees and rocks or even on the pavements. Um, actually, you know, I've started seeing it everywhere I look now. It's lichen.
2: Ah, right, yeah. lichen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Are you fans of lichen? Sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, actually. Are you fans? Are you fans of lichen? You too? Yeah, love
3: lichen. I mean, oh, you I love lichen. Yeah, I love lichen. I mean, I didn't want to say, but I actually been a fan of lichen way before, you know, before it was cool. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's cool, but uh, I think it's
1: it's certainly overlooked, and uh, it's you know it's unflamboyant. But you know, I, I want to celebrate how wonderful the the alliance of plants and fungi is that you get in a lichen. Uh, or Sometimes it's bacteria and fungi, but it's an alliance. So take a look next time you're out and about. And uh, just before recording this, I went outside with a magnifying glass and looked at some on a tree. And it's just wonderful, like a tiny city. with so much structure in it and beautiful colour. So, yeah, it's an alliance. It's not a single organism. It's a symbiosis. It's an alliance that allows algae to survive exposure to ultraviolet light. And the algae has a shelter from the fungus. And in return, the fungus gets nice sugars uh, and food produced by photosynthesis. So the algae would dry out on its own. And that's why you only see moss and algae in damp and shady places. But lichen, when it's the algae is in an alliance with fungi, it can survive in direct sunlight. So you get this tiny ecosystem and it alters its environment too and because some kinds of have got these little hyphae these little roots that reach out and sort of gradually erode the rock that it's sitting on and that starts leaching out nutrients and you know other organisms can benefit
3: from it it's really amazing did you know it's been to space
1: yeah well there are lots of really cool ideas for it to be used in space because you could you can farm with it and, and get things you know grow medicines if you engineer it and yeah because it's so hardy uh, like you say, it can survive uh, really harsh conditions, even in space.
3: Yeah, it's really indestructible. It was in space for, I think, 15 days. And then when it returned, it just carried on photosynthesizing like it had, like nothing had happened, even though it had been exposed to the vacuum in space.
2: Didn't lichens play a big role in early Earth as well?
3: Yeah, um, or maybe it was the, we should say, the middle-aged Earth.
1: So it was about 635 million years ago. And this is just after there'd been a long period of freezing. It's called snowball Earth. But when the ice finally receded, and that was about 635 million years ago, lichen gradually spread out. And as I was saying, you know, this nutrient release that it was doing very gradually, and it was photosynthesizing, and more and more oxygen was uh, being produced. And and that allowed, that facilitated the rise of the animals. um, And we need oxygen. Uh, So it's thanks to them, really. Uh, You know, it took 100 million years, but, you know, (laughs) planetary transformation is a slow process. Yeah, so they help stabilize oxygen levels on the planet, right? Uh, yeah, they do. But, you know, you don't need to get that epic about them. I think it's just nice to enjoy what they look like. As I was saying, you know, go and have a look with your magnifying glass. Um, I wasn't even going to focus on lichens today, but I was reminded of, of them when I was watching uh, Back Garden Biology on YouTube. This is a lovely little lockdown series by an old friend of mine called Lindsay Turnbull of the University of Oxford. She's an ecologist and she's making these lovely little films about stuff in your back garden or your local park. If you look closely at the bark of the tree a bit higher up, you can see lots of bright orangey-yellow things and some grey-green things, all sort of crusty looking. And these are lichens. So if you Google back garden biology, you'll find it. What I was intending to mention, though, was the alliance between the trees in a forest um, that goes on, the networking that goes on between trees. The networking? Yeah, so they share nutrients and information through their roots.
2: Information as well?
1: Yeah. So if if a tree is being attacked by aphids or some other herbivore, uh, the trees will warn other trees nearby by releasing ethylene gas. Uh, and that's a sort of signal to the other trees, oh, there's something around here, watch out. And if a tree needs a bit of food to keep it going in the winter or something, uh, the neighbours help out. And uh, there's a famous bit about this in Peter Vollenben's book, The Hidden Life of Trees, where he describes finding the old stump of a beech tree that had been tro- chopped down at 500 years before, but the remnants of the tree, the bits of the stump, were still alive and they're being fed by the roots of neighbouring trees. So this is all about alliances, and I, I just love that you can see these deep and ancient alliances all around you when you go outside. Now,
2: Anna, what's your
1: escape pod?
2: Well, if we're talking alliances, I can think of no greater example than the great cooperator carbon.
1: Oh, the element carbon. OK, go
2: on. OK, so, well, carbon is one of the most promiscuous of the elements, second only to oxygen in the number of different compounds it forms. And these range from oxides like carbon dioxide, carbonates, the whole of organic chemistry. So that's the molecules that make up life itself. Loads of others. And carbon alliances with other elements lead to this huge range of all the different compounds and the different properties and the roles in, in the world around us. But I don't actually think that's the most remarkable thing about carbon in terms of its alliances.
1: Oh, really? So what is then?
2: Okay, so obviously, life itself is quite important too. But I th- <laughs> Glad you've <laughs> agreed. I th- <laughs> have, to, have to give that one. But I think the real magic happens when a load of carbon atoms bond with just themselves. Because then, even then, the results can be as diverse as soot, diamonds, or graphite, like in pencil leads. And then there's all the nanocarbons, the buckyballs, nanotubes. Of course, the world's favourite wonder material, graphene, and these are all different forms or allotopes of just pure carbon.
1: Okay. Well, I'm a biologist, so I think we have to. We might have to disagree about where the real magic <laughs> of carbon is. Okay. But you know, go on. You've convinced me that. Oh, I am impressed on the range of materials carbon can make. Uh, but go on.
2: Okay. So, in terms of the, all these different forms that carbon can make. It comes down to the different ways that the atoms in carbon are bonded and arranged. So for that, you need to have a little think about how the carbon atom is put together. And I'm going to have a go at drawing a mental picture in your head. The basic carbon atom, a lot of people might know this, uh, has the nucleus. So six positive protons and six neutral neutrons. We'll just stick to just carbon 12. And that's all surrounded by six electrons, and the electrons are all negatively charged. They want to be close to the nucleus, but they stay as far away from each other as possible. So you can imagine for the electrons, say, the 1960s astronauts before there were any workarounds for washing in zero gravity. Or I don't know, you might want to think pirates wow. who have always assumed to have low hygiene aspirations. Anyway, <laughs> Where I'm going with this is you're thinking of characters that stink. Okay. <laughs> and they want to get as far away from each other as possible. But there's some object of shared interest that they all want to get closer to at the same time. Treasure. The treasure, yeah. Or for the astronauts, it might be they're trying to get into, listen to mission control. Yeah. So you've got all these people hovering around trying to get a good view of the or earshot of the treasure or mission control or whatever. But they want to stay as far away from each other as possible. And if you think like that, you get an idea of the electronic structure in carbon, which gives you the basis for creating all these different allotopes. Of course, there's a bit more to it than that.
1: Yeah, there always is, isn't there? Go on then.
2: Yeah, so quantum mechanics, good old quantum. <laughs> lays down rules about how many electrons you can have at certain distances from the nucleus or energy levels. So you can kind of think of it as two of your characters are just a little higher up the pecking order. So they get to be a little bit close to the action. So then you've just got four hovering around in the next level a little distance away. And if they're, if you think of the, especially if they're astronauts, so they can float about the best shape they're going to take to be as far away from each other as possible and close to the, the center is a tetrahedron or like a um, triangular shaped pyramid. And so if you think of that, that, that gives you the sort of template for the arrangement of atoms in one of the forms of carbon. Of course, electrons are a bit like people. They like to pair up. So <laughs> Your four electrons really want to be paired up with another four electrons. And that could be from other elements, but it could also be other carbon atoms. So if you've got soot, you end up with a lot of dangling buttons. You know, if it's, it's soot, it's a bit of a mess. But if you've got them really, really ordered with all these little triangular base pyramids, all at each corner of other triangular base pyramids, all tessellated, you get a big, big structure of covalently bonded, shared macromolecular Electron
1: strength.
2: And that gives you diamond.
1: Oh, uh, of course. Yeah.
2: And then if you obviously diamond is very, very strong, it's got lots of things, but there are materials that we get that are stronger that we're going to come on to.
1: Mm-hmm. Go on then.
2: So now let's say these carbon atoms only bond on to another three carbon atoms. So if you're spreading out three electrons as far away as possible, then you're going to get a sort of triangular shape. And if you then that the little nuclei in the middle will make a honeycomb-shaped lattice. And that's where you get the secret to the extraordinary strengths and electronic properties of graphene. <laughs> but we were talking about ha- having four reactions. So if you've only got three of them bonded, you've got a spare one, and it that is the one that gives graphene all its amazing properties because it gets delocalized over the whole structure. So Graphene stacks on top of each other. You get little bonds forming between them. And that's then graphite, which is just pencil lead. So the bonds in between the layers aren't very strong. So just the friction of a pencil across a page is enough to break those. And it was very useful for physicists to use for their experiments because they could just use a bit of scotch tape, peel off the top layer of their graphite, and they had a pristine service for their experiments. And so for years, people just threw these bits of scotch tape away until... One notorious Friday night, Andre Gim and Kosu Novoselov decided to do some experiments on the stuff on the scotch tape, discovered graphene, and the rest, as they say, is history. So there you that have it. it, carbon. Yeah, it's not just working together, but how the atoms work together, that makes all the difference.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: So Tim, how have you been escaping?
3: So my escapism this week has been rereading the fantastic book *The Man Who Loved Only Numbers* by Paul Hoffman, and it's about about the life of the mathematician Paul Erdős. Okay, remind us of, about him again. So arguably, he's the world's greatest ever human alliance maker. So mm-hmm. he was this amazing Hungarian mathematician who lived between 1913 and 1996. And he wrote research papers with over 500 mathematicians. And there is no mathematician who has published more papers than him. He published over 1,500 throughout his life. So an absolute monster
1: of a mathematician. Um, so this, this is the guy, uh, they say he's got, you, you can make up your Erdish number. Like, so he's the, the Kevin Bacon of maths, right?
3: Yeah, that's right. So like, he's collaborated with so many people that now mathematicians um, sort of judge each other by how close they are to being a collaborator of Erdisch. So Erdisch, his Erdish number is zero. And then if you wrote a research paper with Erdish, your Erdish number is one. And if you wrote a research paper with someone who wrote a research paper with Erdish, then your number is two. So mine's actually four. And uh, yeah, so the mean for um, mathematicians is five. So I'm one better than your average mathematician in terms of Erdős number. Is that on your CV, Tim? (laughs) Uh, It's on my Twitter profile. I'm not sure it's actually on my CV. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, but so the thing about Erdős was he was just such a character. um, And it sort of explains why he wrote so many research papers, because he, he basically had no home and kept all of his possessions in a briefcase. And then he would just show up with his briefcase in hand at a random mathematician friend's house when the the friend opened the door he would declare my brain is open and then he would insist <laughs> then he would insist on staying at the friend's house for two weeks they'd do maths basically 24/7 and then when his friend was absolutely exhausted and they'd written a few papers, he'd ask his friend for, who, for some advice on who to visit next, and then he'd move on to the next person. <laughs> it, it was, like, it was sort of it was a, a mixed bag receiving edit at your house, because on the one hand, you'd almost certainly produce some new publications, but he would also expect his hosts to feed him. He basically couldn't do laundry, so you'd have to clean some of his clothes and he, wow. he would just yeah he would just work non-stop and he did this for decades just going from one house to the next to the next via various conferences and famously it when he died it was just it was just a few hours after having solved another geometry problem so it was he he just loved it and did it all his life
1: it's making me think of bob dylan now like constantly on the road <laughs> yeah, constantly you know? on tour. <laughs> constantly
3: touring. yeah the never ending Erdish tour um <laughs> But the the book is really worth reading. So it's like, you know, you really don't have to be uh, a maths nut to uh, enjoy the book because Airdish just loved maths so much that reading about him sort of makes you enjoy it as well, even if, you know, you you don't get that bogged down in the details in the book. A lot of it's about these really interesting stories. So like one of the things Airdish is also famous for is he gave away quite a lot of his money, but the bits that he sort of kept for his own personal interests was he would set up these things that are, were sort of like mathematical bounties. Um, they've since been called the Erdős problems, where basically when there was something that he didn't know how to solve, but he thought it would be good to solve, he'd put a price on it. So he'd wow. say, if you can solve this, I will give you. And then the prize depended on how hard he thought it was. So when yeah. it was just within reach, it might be like $25. Yeah, But some of the highest ones were a few hundred dollars that you could that he would pay you if you solved a particular problem. And even now, one of his friends administers these problems. So there's sort of money set aside for if you solve one of these, there's a few hundred of them, Erdish problems, you can then go and uh, sort of claim your prize money, even though he's no longer here.
1: Awesome. What a great, uh, great range of alliances we've had.
3: I mean, I wonder whether uh, we should end this with Erdish actually wrote his own epitaph, um, which I think is pretty good. So on his, on his tombstone, he insisted on have, having, finally, I am becoming stupider no more.
2: <laughs> well that's all for this week's Escape Pod. We'll be back next week. Do let us know what sort of things you'd like us to feature, and we'll do our best to oblige. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod.
1: And do remember you can get a subscription to New Scientist for twelve weeks for half price. It's still available. Go to NewScientist.com escape twelve for your bargain. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye.
2: Bye.
1: This podcast is produced by Oli Gyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.
3: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?